Funding for the Think Podcast comes from Trinity University, where the spirit of inquiry can inspire a resilient and diverse community of lifelong learners to answer questions and question answers. More at trinity.edu slash values. You've no doubt heard the guidance for keeping your body and brain healthy. Exercise, stay away from drugs and alcohol, eat whole grains or oily fish or goji berries or whatever. Hard to argue with any of that. But if you want to live long and well and can only choose one priority, make it your relationships. From KERA in Dallas, this is Think. I'm Chris Boyd. That's one big takeaway from an ongoing Harvard study that has tracked subjects and their descendants since the 1930s, measuring their physical, mental, and economic well-being over time. The first to sign on were Harvard students, back when all the undergrads there were men, followed by a far less privileged cohort of boys from Boston's poorest neighborhoods. Tracking these groups over many decades means researchers have observed an enormous variation in outcomes. But in general, the one thing the happiest and healthiest subjects have in common across the board is strong bonds to other people. Dr. Robert Waldinger is professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, current director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development at Massachusetts General Hospital, and co-founder of the Lifespan Research Foundation. His new book, written with his colleague Mark Schultz, is called The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. Bob, welcome to Think. Thank you. So glad to be here. What was the original purpose of the Harvard study of adult development when it got started way back in 1938? The purpose was actually radical for its time. This was supposed to be a study of thriving, of how people took good developmental paths through life, because the investigators said so much has been studied about what goes wrong in development. Let's study healthy pathways. Was the idea always to include measures of both physical and emotional well-being? It was. They started out with elaborate physical exams and long, in-depth psychiatric interviews. And they also sent workers to their homes to talk to their parents and observe how they disciplined the children and what was served for dinner. So... I love science and, and love the idea of participating, but it's a lot for people to commit to. What did they say, those original subjects, about why they were willing to put themselves through this? Well, they didn't know they were committing to an 85-year study. <laughs> no, <laughs> nobody dreamed we would still be going now. Um, they thought they were committing to a few years of, perhaps every year, a follow-up interview. Um, and they were flattered, I think, to be included because they were included because people thought they were thriving. And so both the parents and their sons at that time, because we started out with men, everybody was a little bit flattered that, that they were asked to join. So this is like the ultimate example of what's called a longitudinal study. Tell us what makes a longitudinal study special as research goes. Well, it's special because most of what we know, we either know by asking people to remember the past, and we know our memories are full of holes and make things up, 
Or what we do is we do snapshot studies. So we could take a snapshot of 20-year-olds today and a snapshot of 40-year-olds and 60-year-olds. But that can lead us to think we know how life proceeds when it doesn't work that way. And I can give you a little example. Claude Pepper, who was a senator from the state of Florida, and he once quipped, he said, when I look at South Florida, I would have to believe that you are born Cuban and you die Jewish. What he was saying is, you can, if you just look, take a look at any moment in time, you can think that life progresses in a certain way and you can be misled. Were researchers at the very beginning aware that that first cohort of Harvard sophomores, that their unique levels of privilege might limit the extent to which anybody could extrapolate the results of this study to the general population? I don't think anyone thought so at the time. I mean, <laughs> if you want to study normal development, wouldn't you study all white males from Harvard? <laughs> of course, now it's the it, you know it's the most politically incorrect sample you could possibly have. Uh, but what we know is that the history of research has been a much you know a bias toward uh, Caucasians, a bias toward males, and now we are correcting that. And and the Harvard study has corrected that. We've brought in women in two generations, so now we're about half female. But at the time, nobody thought anything of just studying white men. So when they went to correct this, tell us about this population in inner city Boston that they turned to. Well, this was a study started at Harvard Law School by Sheldon Gluck, who was a law professor, and Eleanor Gluck, his wife, who was a social worker. They were interested in juvenile delinquency and particularly why some kids managed to stay out of trouble. And so they chose children deliberately who were from not just poor homes in the city of Boston, but from the most troubled homes, homes where there was domestic violence, familial illness and mental illness, because they wanted to see how it was that some children were able to thrive even in the midst of such difficulty. So what kinds of questions appeared on those earliest surveys and how has the focus of the questions evolved since then? Well, the questions were about the big domains of life. So physical health, mental health, um, school performance, then work life as they got older, relationships. So all the big domains of life. And those questions have continued. Um, and then some random questions like, are you ticklish? <laughs> we still don't know why they asked the original subjects why they're ticklish, <laughs> but, uh, but they did. Uh, but many of them were the basic questions about what what are your habits daily? What's your outlook on life? What do you hope to be when you grow up? So many wonderful, rich uh, answers that we got to these questions. Before we get into some of the most compelling conclusions thus far, I do have to ask whether there's any way to control for the fact that being part of a lifelong study of everything about your life might cause people to be somehow more introspective than they would have been otherwise, might cause them to make different choices just by virtue of being a study subject. You are absolutely right. And in fact, we asked people at one point, what do you think it's been like for you being in the study? How do you think it's influenced you? Some people said, didn't have any influence at all, but 
many, many people said, this made me more introspective. It meant that, that I was going to get a questionnaire regularly that was going to ask me to look at my life. So your question is right on target. We know that the act of studying these people made them think more about how their lives were going. What's great about that, though, Bob, I guess, is that learning more about these questions and these studies allows all the rest of us who are not part of a study like this to gain some of the same benefits. And that's one of the reasons why we wrote this book. We've been publishing our findings in academic journals. And of course, nobody reads academic journals, but it seemed that people could really use some of the information that we've learned, you know, over decades of research with thousands of lives. Okay, it's not really a spoiler because you tell us right on page 10 that the single best thing we can do for ourselves if we make no other changes in our lives is to cultivate good relationships. I mean, this sounds easy enough when you read it on page 10, but doing it right actually requires a lifetime of effort, doesn't it? Absolutely. It's a practice. And, and that's what we discovered, that the people who thrived were the people who made it a priority to keep paying attention to their connections with others, to keep nurturing those relationships. So we've started talking about it as what we call social fitness. And what we mean is, is an analogy to physical fitness. You know, if we, if we go and work out today, we don't come home and say, good, I'm done. I don't ever have to do that again. And, and what we find with relationships is that perfectly good relationships can wither away just from neglect. And what we found was that the, the people who were healthiest and happiest were people who paid attention to their friends, their family, their community relationships, their work relationships, all the way through their lives. What are some of the physical advantages that seem correlated with a collection of strong, positive relationships? So we find that good connections are protective against coronary artery disease, arthritis, type 2 diabetes, dementia. That what they find is that people who are isolated and lonely are more likely to get these illnesses as they grow older. And people who are more connected in happier relationships are less likely to get these problems. It sounds like this is about more than just having good relationships and therefore someone in your life is looking out for you and notices when you're not well. What could be going on there? That's what we've been studying for the last <laughs> 10 years. We really, we've been, you know, and, and many other groups are studying it too. The best hypothesis we have is that this is about stress and it's about relationships being good stress regulators. And I can explain what I mean by that. Um, so let's say something upsetting happens to me today and I find my, myself all revved up and I'm churning about it and I'm upset. My heart rate goes up, all kinds of physical changes happen. And that's a normal fight or flight response that the body has to a challenge. But what we want is that when the challenge is removed, we want the body to go back to equilibrium, to baseline. And if I go home and talk to my wife about this, or I call a friend and I can really let them know everything that happened, I can feel my body calm down. And what we believe happens is that people who don't have someone to talk to in their lives, someone they can 
talk to about stressful experiences, those people stay in a kind of chronic fight or flight response. And what that means is there are higher levels of circulating stress hormones. There are higher levels of inflammation throughout the body. And we think that those things break down body systems over time. So what constitutes, for purposes of this study, a good relationship? So many different things do. So first of all, you don't need a marriage license. You don't need to live with someone. Um, friendships, family relationships, uh, pets are included, um, work relationships for sure. Um, actually, something we call casual ties. So the person who gets you your coffee at Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts in the morning, the the person who checks you out in the grocery store or the mail carrier you say hello to, we get little hits of well-being by having friendly exchanges, even with people who we are connected with very casually. Um, what we do think is that every person needs at least one relationship where they know that if they're in trouble, they can call on this person. In fact, we asked our original participants to tell us, we said, who could you call in the middle of the night if you were sick or scared? And then we asked them to list everybody. And many of our people could list quite a number of people. Some of our folks couldn't list anyone. Mm. And a few of those people who couldn't list anyone were married. Wow. And, and so what we think is that everybody needs at least one of those people to feel like the world is a safe, secure place. Bob, you mentioned that um, even more casual ties like those, you know, interactions at the coffee shop that we go to every morning or work relationships can be valuable. Lots of people who are now working from home have said, look, I'm not at work to make friends. I don't need that. I'm just as productive. Should we be cautious about assuming that we're just as well off working from home in an isolated setting and connecting over technology as meeting in a physical space somewhere? We should be cautious because the need for connection is there despite these changes in our work lives. So people can say, I don't need relationships, but I suspect that many of us are feeling the absence of those connections that we maybe took for granted at work. These people we saw every day and yeah, they were just the background of our work lives, but now they're not there. And I think that the the problem is that the path of least resistance can be toward isolation. And we're finding that the culture is becoming more isolated. People are becoming less connected to each other. So my hope is that people will find ways to stay connected, to get connected to other people. It could be in their neighborhoods if they're working from home. Um, maybe we're going to figure out better ways to do remote meetings so we actually get to know each other personally along with conducting business. But this is not a need that's going to go away. Probably doesn't help us that we don't always seem to know instinctively what will make us happy. Can you talk about the strangers on a train research? <laughs> yeah, I love that research. Um, another research group did it. They we're trying to understand whether people thought it was gonna make them happy to talk to strangers. So they took a group of people and they assigned them randomly either to do what they normally did on a subway ride, 
Usually it was looking at their phone, listening to music, reading. Some people were assigned to do that, business as usual on the subway. Some people were assigned to talk to a stranger. And they asked everybody, how do you think you're going to like this subway ride? <laughs> and the people who were assigned to talking to strangers did not think they were going to like it very much. Afterwards, they asked people, how did you enjoy the subway ride? The people who had talked to strangers were much happier as a group than the people who had kept to themselves. And that's just one example of how we don't always know what's going to energize us and make us happy, happy as we look forward. You Lots know, should I, sh should I just watch another thing on Netflix or should I go to that party, right? That's the decision we're making all the time. I've heard that we all have a kind of set point of happiness that we tend to return to within a few months of either very good or very bad life events. So how much of our happiness might be genetically predetermined somehow and how much might be subject to our choices and actions? Mm. There's a researcher who has actually tried to quantify this, a psychologist named Sonia Lubomirsky, who studies happiness. And she has estimated, using a lot of data, that about 50% of our happiness is genetically determined. It's our inborn temperament. And then maybe 10% is our current life circumstances. And then another 40% is under our control. And 40% is a lot. It is a lot. What are some of the things we can do that might positively or negatively affect our happiness? Well, certainly we we are not happy by choice all day long. Most For most of us, it, it isn't really a choice. I think of it more as an accident. I mean, happiness is a mood that comes and goes. But I think we can build lives that make us more accident prone, more prone to become happy moment after moment. Um, and that's where I think we can, first of all, take care of ourselves physically, because when we feel better, we're happier, but also to take care of these relationships so that when difficulties come along, when challenges come along, we've got people to reach out to, people to support us. And all of that keeps the lows from being quite as low and often makes the highs higher because relationships are a great source of fun and joy. Funding for the Think Podcast comes from TCU, exploring renewable and sustainable energy sources to power a clean energy future. Stories of research can be found at endeavors.tcu.edu. Let's talk about some of the work of different stages of life. Ages 20 through 40 are about weaving your own safety net. What does that look like? Once we start launching in our 20s we're really we've got two big tasks one is to find work that we want to do if we're lucky if we're lucky work that's meaningful and allows us to support ourselves and also to find relationships that will support us for many people it's finding a particular partner an intimate partner but it doesn't have to be but usually it's finding some close people who you can be connected with over time. So those are two big tasks. Uh, Freud used to call it to love and to work. Um, and then as we move into our 40s, we make more commitments. We commit to a career. Many of us commit to partners. Many of us have kids, and that's a big commitment and a lifelong commitment. And so what we find is that 
we have more pulls on our time, on our energy. Um, in addition, some of us are taking care of aging parents or relatives who are in some way disabled and need care. All of that can add to the burdens of adult life. And that can actually make it hard to keep relationships going, to keep friendships up, to be a frequent uh, uh, a participant in you know, a basketball league or a gardening club, whatever it might be. And so uh, one of the things that many people say about early adulthood moving into midlife is that it becomes a challenge to keep your friendships going. So the goal of midlife, roughly ages 41 to 65, is about stepping beyond the self. How do we step beyond ourselves? Well, earlier in life, we really do think much more about ourselves, about who am I going to be? Am I going to be good enough? Am I going to be able to take care of myself and maybe some other people? Um, all of that. What am I going to achieve? But then as we get older, we begin to become more and more aware that life is short, that you only go around once, as they say. And we begin to say, what do I want to have live in the world because I'm here? And what do I want to have live on beyond me? So for some people, that's children. For some people, that's a cause. You know, I care very much about working to prevent climate change, for example. Could be any number of causes. Um, and what we find is that the people who feel like life is most meaningful, by the time they get into midlife, they want to do something for others, something for the world. You know, it might be mentoring people at work. And so we begin to see what Eric Erickson, the psychologist, called generativity, the idea of, of giving to others, paying it forward. So uh, having children certainly is a great way to step outside yourself and your own needs. Why are so many couples with children happiest in their relationships after the kids move out? I know. Yeah. Well, you know, if you think about it, when we have kids, we become more like a tag team. Okay, you make dinner and I'll give the bath. Or, you know, there are just so many ways in which we have to divide up uh, activities. And you know, what I remember with my wife was that we used to have so much more time just to hang out, right? To find out about each other's day. And then there were these little beings who needed us and we had to run around, you know, taking care of so much for them and for the family and for the house. And so what happens is that couples don't have the chance to really tune into each other regularly the way they did when they were single. And that's why we find that, that, Actually, on average, couples are happier again when their children leave home. And they're only less happy again if children come back to live at home. <laughs> now, <laughs> really, there have been studies of this. Now, this is in the U.S. Now, we know that the norms are quite different in many other cultures. So I'm really just talking about the United States here. All right. Later life, according to this study, is all about minding who and what matters. How does that help us to thrive even in the years when our bodies might not work as well as they once did? Mm, yeah. And what we find is that as people get older, they actually get happier 
by this process of minding what matters and minding who matters, it seems that as we get older and we become more aware of our own mortality, rather than making us more depressed, it actually gets us to focus on the things we care about and the things that make us happy. And so what we find is that as people get older, they start doing more of what they like to do, more of what's meaningful, and giving up some of those things they never really enjoyed so much. They don't like it's not going to those meetings that have been annoying for quite a while and that they have the choice not to attend. Um, maybe even stepping back from some of those relationships where they really haven't been enjoying getting together for quite a while but feel obliged. We stop doing as much of the shoulds and we start paying more attention to what we really care about because we know life is short. I really believe, Bob, that everybody deserves love, but, you know, some people are real pills. How can we tell the <laughs> difference between an energizing relationship and a depleting one and invest in them accordingly? Yeah. Well, not every depleting and uh, relationship is a bad relationship. I mean, it's, it's, it can be exhausting, can be annoying, and yet they, it may be important. We may get things out of them. So the what we find is that the people who are best at relationships don't just walk away when there's a problem or when it's not fun, but they see if they can work through differences and difficulties. They see if they can make relationships better. But each of us can tune into ourselves. I mean, if we if we pay attention, you know what it's like when you have a conversation that feels energizing and you know what it's like to come away from a conversation feeling gloomier, <laughs> feeling more depressed, feeling exhausted, right? And so I think those can be indicators, as you said, of where to invest and see if you can invest in those relationships that at least don't make you feel sadder and more closed off to the world when you walk away from a conversation. Bob, what role does curiosity play in strong relationships? It plays a big role. Curiosity is just being interested in somebody else, being uh, curious about who this person is. And we can do that with people we know really well. In fact, that's often the place where bringing curiosity is the most helpful. Uh, they did a study of how good people were at knowing what the other person was feeling and thinking. And they found that romantic partners were best at knowing what the other was feeling and thinking when they first got together. Because if you think about it, when we're dating, it's like, well, how into me is this other person? So you're really paying attention. And they found that we get worse at it. So couples who've been together 20, 30 years, and not just couples, but friendship pairs, people get worse at it because they assume they know the other person. So if we can bring curiosity to relationships that, that are tired or we take for granted, it can really liven them up. Actually, one of my meditation teachers taught me this. He said, ask yourself the question, what's here that I've never noticed before? And he was saying that we should do that when we sit down on a cushion and meditate. But you could also do that when you're having dinner tonight with the person you've had dinner with every night for years. 
And it really livens things up. Why is it so important to open ourselves to intimacy? So in addition to trying to know what the people in our lives are thinking, we let ourselves be known, warts and all. Think about your experiences of someone who really gets you, that the experience of being seen for who we are is so powerful. It just feels great. And, and often you hear the expression, this person gets me. And it's, it's a joy to have that experience. But we can't do that unless we open up to people. Now, obviously, we're not going to open up to everyone, not even to most people. But gradually, we can come to see who we can trust with our really personal matters. And when we open up to that person, and that person accepts us, and uh, and is very clear about who we are, there's a bond that's created that's very powerful. When you say the two most important categories of emotions in healthy relationships are empathy and affection, what are some ways we can express our affection so that it's really effective and, and sort of gets through to the person we care about? People have started writing about what they call the languages of love mm. uh, because for me, affection may look different than it does to you. So, you know, for some people, what's what really shows affection is if their partner does the dishes. For other people, it's if their partner takes their hand. Uh, for other people, it's if their partner surprises them with a beautiful dinner. Uh, there's so many different ways. And so a lot of it is finding out what feels affectionate to the other person in the relationship and then showing the other person that you want to do that for them is the kind of well-being we're talking about here equally available to everybody regardless of say education level or socioeconomic status it is uh what we know is that certainly wealth does not make you happier. Now, it is true that getting your basic material needs met is really important for happiness, really important. So, you know, they've done some studies that show that, like in this country, until you make up to about 75000 a year or something like that, that, until you get your basic needs met, you're going to get happier with every dollar you make, extra dollar. But that then beyond that, you don't get happier. Uh, you could make $75 million and not be that much happier than the person who makes 75000 And similarly, with high achievement, with fame, those things don't make us happy. They don't make us unhappy either. They're just different. Um, and so I think that's really important to name because our finding about relationships being powerful is they're powerful for everybody. They're powerful no matter your wealth, your uh, educational status, uh, your political persuasion, doesn't matter. Does the study account for the effects of things like structural racism or some other kind of discrimination that some people might suffer a great deal more than others? We don't account for that because we are all a, 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 a we are a study of all Caucasians, unfortunately, because in the city of Boston in 1938, it was 97% white. So if you start a study in 1938 in Boston, you start with Caucasian people. But 
there are many other studies now of people of color, of people of different ethnic groups. Um, what we know is that structural racism takes a terrible toll. And, you know, what we've come to understand as microaggressions wear down our well-being every day. And so it's really important that we become more aware of what this is like for the people who have to deal with that. And we do our best to eliminate both the systems that foster racism, but also all of those day-to-day -day interactions that make some people feel unattended to or less than, that, that those are things that um, I think other good research studies are beginning to understand now in terms of the toll it takes on well-being. You suggest we ought to add something like relationships to basic educational curricula. How, broadly speaking, how would you structure a program to help children learn this stuff early rather than having to sort of figure it out through trial and error the way most of us do? It's been done. There are so many good programs now. They exist. It's It comes under this big umbrella called socio-emotional learning. And many, many people have developed uh, classes that teachers, you know, teachers can teach a class or several classes to kids of all ages about feelings. This is what feelings are like. This is what it's like to be sad. This is what it's like to feel angry. And then we can talk, teach them about relationships. And some of these courses will teach about what it's like to have an argument with your friend, um, what bullying is like and, and the toll that it takes on kids. So all of that is teachable. And what they find is when they study this is that the children who receive this education in school not only do better behaviorally and they're happier, they do better at math and reading and all of their other academic subjects. So it's there, it's out there, and we're trying to spread that across educational systems. If relationships are good for our well-being and loneliness is bad, what do you suggest to folks who maybe just moved across the country to start a new job or are on a military deployment, are separated from the people they are closest to? Find groups that are interested in newcomers. There are newcomers groups. Find groups where they are involved in things that you love or you care about. That's often one of the quickest ways to meet new people. So, for example, you know, it could be a basketball league. It could be... Um, you know, a political campaign. It could be a, a knitting club. It could be anything. Find something you care about, something you enjoy doing. Do it with other people because the research shows that if you have repeated contact with other people and particularly other people who share an interest, you have a natural place to start a conversation. And if you can have conversations with those people over and over again, some of those conversations will start to deepen into friendships. Dr. Robert Waldinger is professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development at Massachusetts General Hospital, co-founder of the Lifespan Research Foundation, and co-author, along with colleague Mark Schultz, of The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. Bob, it's been a joy. Thank you so much for making time to talk. 
Oh, this has been a real pleasure. Thank you. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can subscribe to our podcast. It's free wherever you get podcasts. You can also check out the podcast on our website, and you can sign up there for our new e-newsletter. That's at think.kera.org. Again, I'm Chris Boyd. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.